minimalists. <laughs> All right, y'all. We're here with Ramit Sethi. We're going to talk about... We're gonna keep talking about money. We're gonna talk about budgeting. Maybe we'll find some things we disagree about. We've got some good questions here. Before we dive into those questions, though, we do this little segment called "More About Less," where we, we, uh, we, we might disagree about money sometimes, and that's okay. In fact, it's probably the number one thing people disagree about anyway. So my guess is you stumble into all kinds of disagreements. And I wanted to start off. I found this on your website. You have this big wins manifesto. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But there's there's a uh, seven big wins or six big wins section of this. And I'm going to read this really quick. It'll be a jump off point for us to have a conversation here. If you simply get these big wins right, you'll almost never need to worry about minutia like, can I afford this appetizer? Or should I spend $2.50 on this mocha? The beautiful part about big wins is you do the work up front and they pay rewards for the rest of your life. For example, one $5,000 salary negotiation in your 20s can be worth over a million dollars over your lifetime. How many lattes is that worth? Totally agree with that. In fact, yeah, one of the things that we hear people say sometimes is, um, I'm too young to start investing. <laughs> and it's like, well, wait a minute. Like, that's the th Theoretically, everyone, even minimum wage earners, can become millionaires. What is it? 25-year-old saves 25 bucks a week with the average rate of return in like an index fund. You're going to be a millionaire by the time you retire. And people hear that and it sounds... It sounds impossible because they don't understand compound interest or really what you're talking about here is like compound decision making in yes. a way. So um, you have some things here, though, uh, where you talk about um, here are some of the big wins. Automate your finances. What do you mean by that? Uh, when most people think about money, they think that they're going to need to track their spending. They're going to need to budget for the rest of their life. Not only do they feel bad, they don't really see the payoff. They're like, OK, I'm going to know where I spend. I know I'm doing it poorly. What then? The real payoff when you automate your investments is it's like an email coming into your inbox. Part of it will go, it'll be filtered over to savings automatically. Part of it will be filtered over to investments automatically. And part of it pops right out for you to enjoy guilt-free spending. So so each month, I uh, I use a robo-investor. I use Betterment. Um, no sponsorship or anything like that. I just, that's just that's who I use. Um, each month, I have a certain amount of money that is automatically withdrawn from, from my savings account, and it goes straight into Betterment. You're talking about that. That would be part of the automation strategy. That's part of it, and that's awesome. So now you know mathematically when you will become a millionaire or multi-million, whatever the number is for you. It's not magic. It's math. It's very simple, okay? That's what I want to demystify money. You don't have to be some genius to become a millionaire. No, it's just math. The second thing is with savings as part of your automation plan, you can actually create sub-savings accounts. So I love these sub-savings accounts because you get to save for things you love. I want to take a trip to Thailand in December. Awesome. We're going to automate that money. 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month, 500 bucks a month, whatever the number is. So you should be spending really, once you go through this system, about an hour a month or less on your money. Mm. Sounds to me like you're talking about budgeting. Definitely not budgeting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you say start investing early, and we we we, yeah. we sort of touched on that. You know, th there are sort of double myths here. I'm I'm too young to start investing. Yes, but then also I'm too old to start investing, and I don't have enough money to start investing. Okay, let's that, tackle those. Okay, so the irony of I'm not rich enough to start investing is 
You get rich by <laughs> investing. So it's so ironic. And it's, it's a classic and chronic misunderstanding of money. When you hear people say phrases like, I don't have enough money to invest, or investing in the stock market's like gambling. It's not that people have sat down, read a book, understand risk and reward. No, they're afraid. They, are, they haven't read. They haven't learned. And so that is one of the most costly decisions they will ever make. It will literally cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars. Meanwhile, they're sitting over here worrying about lattes or should I buy this shirt? You, you missed the entire point of your financial life. You're asking $3 questions. You forgot about the most important $300,000 question. Dave Ramsey did a, a study of millionaires recently. He and uh, Chris Hogan. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Chris Hogan. He was on the podcast recently. Um, they did uh, it was over 10,000 millionaires over a, a long period of time. Largest... Uh, in fact, uh, we might have a copy of the book. But anyway, um, uh, what is the what is the title of the book? Um, Everyday Millionaires, and and so like th that's what it is. And they found the most common thing amongst all of these millionaires is that they just started saving their money. And some of them might be four hundred one k, some of them might be Roth IRA, and and yeah, you can tweak the nuances. But the most important thing was they they started setting aside the money, yeah. right? I, I have a a reader of mine who used this automation system and she forgot about one of her accounts and she logged in like six years later after using the 2009 first edition of this book and six years later she's like i found this account i logged in and it had twelve thousand dollars in it it's funny you say that. i did the same thing with uh, 401k I, I i set up my 401k and i never looked at it went yeah. back in the corporate world it's the one thing out of all the terrible decisions i made throughout my 20s overspending all this money i did have 401k that i that i maxed out um, every paycheck, and I didn't notice it was just like another tax. Like well, I got the city tax and the state tax and the federal tax and the FICA and this, and it's like 401k tax is how I how I treated it. And it, when I left the corporate world, I, I had over a hundred thousand dollars in there, and I was like, oh, I didn't even remember I had this. That's it. That's that right there is the big win. And so, if everyone, if you get these five to seven big wins right in life, they don't. You don't even know it. You do it once. You went through the one hour of signing your 401k paperwork, so easy in retrospect and you never think about it again, that decision alone changes your life. Well, let's talk about one more of these, yeah. these big wins here. Improve your credit score. Yeah. Why the hell do you need a credit score? Well, this is, I, and I know Dave Ramsey disagrees. I disagree with him on this. Uh -huh. So if you are going to buy something larger in life, like a house, mm -hmm. you will use credit. Not, but, yeah, you, but you don't necessarily need a credit score to buy a house. So, so I'll give you an example. So yeah. I bought a house a couple years ago um, in, in Dayton, Ohio, paid cash for it. It's a rental property, mm -hmm. uh, different from a, a house I live in. But uh, now I paid cash for it, so obviously I didn't need a, a credit score. I just needed the money. But um, even if I were to buy a house today, you can get a, a mortgage company to underwrite a, a mortgage you without can. without having any credit score. Because by the way, I could have a, a 800 credit score but make $10,000 a year. A credit score isn't really a credit score, it's a debt score. We can agree on that. Well, I, what I agree on is that you can theoretically buy a house with cash or using alternative methods, but almost nobody will. And so I live in a world of what is, not what could be. And so the vast majority, over 90%, over 98% of people I'd be willing to bet listening to this will use credit if and when they buy a house. I'm speaking to them. Now, if you're on the alternative side, sure. Once you are advanced enough, you earn the right to be different. But most people are mostly the same. And so I want to optimize and get the big wins right in life. Now, for credit, 
if you look in this book, again, you can disagree, but if you are like most people, which I am as well, Mm -hmm. then the difference between buying the typical house, which is like $250,000 in America, again, typical average, I know it's different on the coast, the difference between and even different in Dayton, Ohio. My my house is one hundred and thirty thousand dollars. <laughs> there you so. go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the difference between having a great credit score and a poor credit score is tons and tons of money. It's like a hundred thousand dollars or more. So people don't they don't know this. In chapter nine, you'll see the actual math, and you'll realize that if you have a good credit score and you are like most people who use credit to buy a house, that's where you can save a hundred thousand dollars. So, so I guess what we we're actually not disagreeing here. What we're saying is, and I, I noticed this in your book. You, you you talked about there was a, a section in your book where you talk about debt, and you're like, hey, some people are completely uncomfortable with debt, and you shouldn't have any debt. There are other people who it doesn't give them anxiety to yeah. have debt, and so there might be an appropriate amount of debt. Now, for me, whenever I give advice like this, really all I'm saying is I'm giving advice to myself, and okay. I'm not comfortable with debt at all, personally. I, I, I don't do debt, period. I, I, I don't. I, the only exception I would make is if I was buying a house, and even then, I personally, I'd have to put 50% down and have a seven-year fixed-rate mortgage. Like okay. that, That's how uncomfortable with debt I am. Uh, on this show, we often talk about there's no such thing as good debt. There's some debt that's way worse. I mean, a corner store, liquor store loan, like where the payday loan sort of thing, is way, way worse than having a 15-year fixed-rate mortgage, right? I, but still, it's not good debt. If it was good debt, you wouldn't be trying to pay it off. You'd be trying to get more of it. Mm, interesting. Okay. So I I disagree, but I respect the strong point of view. And in a way, we are similar in that you are super conservative on debt. As you said, I don't like debt at all. Or if I did buy a house, it would be 50% down. I love it. For me, as I wrote in one of my 10 rules of money, uh, I want to pay upfront for things like a car or potentially even a house. And I've already saved for a house, even though I don't think much of real estate as an investment. Well, let's, 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 we, we've got time for a digression here. Yeah. Talk to me about that because I tend to agree with you. Okay. I, I, I don't think that, I, although I've diversified, I bought a rental property. The reason I did that is if the whole internet blows up, I can just go, <laughs> I've got a nice two bedroom, one bath house back in Dayton, Ohio that my family can go live in. No if, one, if necessary. none of your listeners and viewers are leaving the minimalist. They're going to be here forever. I know that. <laughs> Okay, so my take on real estate. Um, In America, the American dream we have been taught Uh is go to college, get a job, work at it for 40x years, have 2.5 kids, buy a house... Yep. Have a midlife crisis and then it's over. Right, right. Okay, where the did... The Corvette falls into that yeah, midlife Yeah, exactly, crisis, yeah. Right. Where did this come from? Has anyone ever questioned it? If you dig deep into history, you will discover that <clears throat> buying a house, it's no accident that a lot of people want you to buy a house. And they use phrases which have become so deep in our culture, they're almost religion. Things like, do it for the tax deduction. They're not making more land. You're throwing money away on rent. It infuriates me to hear these phrases. I hate liars and I hate bullies. And when it comes to real estate, most people have been lied to and bullied. I will tell you a couple of things that may, I hope, my dream is that people listening to this and watching, they challenge the conventions. You may decide to buy a house, fine. That's fine. But I want you to actually run some numbers. Mm. So a couple of things on throwing money away on rent. If you believe that, then when you went out to a restaurant last night and spent 20 bucks or 30, did you throw money away on dinner? No, you paid for something you valued. 
That's exactly what buying a house that you live in is. The tax deduction, a simple answer to that is you don't spend a dollar to make a dime, especially now after the 2018 tax law changes. The other thing is there's a question about, you know, if my mortgage is the same as my rent, what people forget to factor in is there are tons of what I call phantom costs. If we had a rent that was $1,000 a month and a mortgage that was $1,000 a month, when you factor in taxes for the mortgage, maintenance, when you factor in your extra fridge that you're going to buy or the new carpet, you should actually be factoring roughly 50% more. Plus the cost, the unquantifiable cost of inconvenience, uh, where it's like, uh, man, uh, uh, I'll give you an example. Our air conditioner broke in the apartment that I rent here in Los Angeles, right? And I called my landlord and said, hey, the air conditioner broke. And they had to go through all the pricing and bidding and, and bringing contractors out and testing. And I don't know how many thousands of dollars they had to spend on that, but I didn't have to, I didn't have to spend it. Same for me. My, I, I love that example. You made a phone call. You're like, oh, I got to go. I'll see, you in a, I'll see you tomorrow. And it's come back and it's fixed. Mm -hmm. And so what I want people to do is to know that for what is most people's biggest purchase of their lives, you need to know the math. You need to understand that you can't use these pithy catchphrases for a multi-hundred thousand dollar purchase. And I will give you one last example. Every one of us has some aunt or kooky neighbor who comes to us and says, real estate, of course, I bought my house in 1970 for $200,000. I sold it for 600,000. I made a $400,000 profit. Did you really? Mm. If you actually factor in how much you paid in taxes, maintenance, et cetera, and you factor in what you could have got by taking that down payment and the rest of your payments and investing it in the market, even subtracting out what you paid for rent, you will discover that real estate for your primary residence is often, in fact, more than often, not a great investment. So for everyone listening, the plainest way to say it is I could go buy a place tomorrow cash. I don't. I ran the numbers. It doesn't make any sense for me. You can agree or disagree. You can tell me you want to buy a house because you want to knock the walls down or you want a school district. Fine. There's plenty of reasons to buy a house, financial and non-financial. But do not let this American dream, which really involves the National Association of Realtors mm. and all these big box, even the government wants people to buy houses. Do not let them bully you into buying. Run the numbers for yourself. Make your own decisions. Yeah, it's, it's funny you, you talk about profiting $400,000 on the house that you bought in 1970 or whatever. And that's not actual profit. It is revenue perhaps, but we're not taking into account all of these, these tiny things like the realtor is what another 6% of yep. what, what, and, and all, all the taxes, the maintenance. And then of course, all the headaches. What is the cost of your average headache that you're dealing with? Um, and then if you don't have to deal with it, so like for me, I don't live in Dayton, Ohio right now, so I have to have a property manager where I pay them a percentage of the revenue that I make from my rental property every single yeah. month. And by the way, you are more advanced than most, which is you bought a rental property. What I just said applies to a primary residence, which is what the vast majority of people buy. Yours is a rental property, so you're valuing it a little differently. You're looking at things like cash flow, et cetera, and that's good. The, the real estate investors I know are generally pretty savvy. Like they know their numbers. They might not always win, but they're pretty savvy. Primary homeowners are the least savvy of all when it comes to their investment. They they're following are, a template they've been handed. Yeah, you, you, yeah. You're supposed to buy a house because you're 30 now. You're, you're a grown-up, and you'd be stupid not to. Yeah, I hate that. It, it's actually the core of what you talk about not doing, which is 
focus on what is important to you and don't buy into these stories of you need a Lexus or you need a house. If you want it, you can afford it, okay, but don't simply do it because society tells you to do it. When you say afford it, that's also a fascinating word because often we think about like, well, this widget is going to cost me $1,000 and I've got $1,000 in the bank. That means I can afford it. Well, yeah, but the cost of the thing goes beyond the price tag. Yes, and people don't see that. So even for a car you buy, there are a lot of phantom costs. Just to give you an example, I used to have a $350 a month car payment. Now, talk about stylistic difference. I could have bought it all cash, Mm -hmm. but I chose to have a five-year loan. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's interesting. So why would I choose that? I, I have a different view on debt. But anyway, $350 a month payment. When I factored in all the expenses, I lived in San Francisco, I had parking, I had a garage, I had, you know, insurance. I had that thing every January, you need to pay the DMV fee. I factored it all in. It was over $1,000 a month. So from 350 sticker price payment, it was actually $1,000 a month. Factor in gas, factor in all that insurance. Now think about what it is for a house. You think your payment is just 1,000 bucks or 2,000, wrong. The phantom costs on a car are massive. The ones on a house are gargantuan. So you can't just look at the sticker price. You gotta factor it all in. And, and yeah, it's it's all this other stuff. It's the cost of changing the oil. It's the cost of of cleaning the thing, taking care of the thing. By the way, the things we bring into our lives, like, well, now that I have this really nice car, I better make sure I have a house that has a garage. So it's going to cost me to store the thing. And, and worrying about the thing, there's psychological costs to these that we can never quantify. I totally agree. I love a simple, beautiful life. And simple can be different, right? We can totally disagree on what simple means and beautiful. But... Unless it's something that I love, I don't really want to spend, especially the largest purchase of my life. So again, all this is not to say that buying a house is bad. That's not the case. I already have a payment saved up. I'm ready to go when and if the time is right. But I just want people to think critically about all of these purchases, especially the biggest one in your life. Let me ask you this. If you had $100,000 right now, we have a, a listener who tweets us, says, I have $100,000. I want to put it somewhere in the market, just sitting here in my in my savings account, which would be a really nice problem to have, right? Uh, we often talk about, like, you don't want to live a problem-free life. You want to improve your problems as life goes on, right? This would be a great problem to have, but we're in a weird time in terms of it's been, what, 11 years since we had a recession? You first put this book out. Great timing. Uh, unintentional timing. Very unintentional. <laughs> March 2009, bottom of the recession. Uh-huh. But it wasn't obvious back then. My publisher was like, do you want to change anything like two months before? I'm like, change anything. This is timeless material. It doesn't matter if it's the market's up or down. You invest the same. I went on tour. Local newscasters were like, this guy is nuts talking about investing. Everyone's unemployed. I said, 10% unemployment, yes. But let's talk about saving, but also growth. And if the people who bought this book in 2009 used it, they're set for life. So now, 10 years later, you know, whether it's up or down, advice doesn't change when it comes to money. Mm. So the, is the question, what do you do with 100K? Yeah, if it's sitting okay. there in, in your savings account All right. and you, you're debt-free All right. and um, go from there. So I'll give you the short answer and the long answer. The short answer and the correct answer is... If you gave me 100K, I would simply put it right into my system and it would flow where it needs to go. So a percentage would go to savings, a percentage would go to investments, a percentage would pop out for guilt-free spending. That's where I want people to get. And just think about how I just said that. It's so calm. It's so matter-of-fact. There's no uh, emotional... anxiety No, there. nothing. Not at all. Because I got the system. That's my big win. My automated finances. 
And whether you give me a dollar or a million dollars, it's all going through that system. And I just, I love it. I feel so good. Now, how do you get there? What I would recommend for this person is a couple of things. They're debt-free, great. I would do a couple of things. First, I would say get a three-month to six-month emergency fund. That's nice. It's simple. It protects you in case things go bad, and eventually they will go bad. Life goes like that sometimes. But the second thing is you can build an amazing life by investing that money. So after you take out, let's just say, uh, six to 10, 15K for your emergency fund, you got 85K left. What you can do with that is you can put it into the stock market. Now, for everyone listening saying, that feels like gambling, read the book. Mm -hmm. Learn about investing. It's not gambling. There are lots of principles of long-term investing. Now, here's a very interesting uh, fact that I cite in the book. There's a concept called dollar cost averaging, which means should I put, you know, 100 or 1,000 bucks a month into the market? Vanguard did a study and they found that if you've got a lump sum to invest, they asked, should you dollar cost average it or should you put it all in at once? Mm -hmm. And the counterintuitive finding was if you have a lump sum, you should invest it all at once. Now, you could say, obviously, Vanguard is a place I trust. My, my SEP IRA is through Vanguard. So, um, I, but it, it does seem like that's self-serving for them to say, yes, put all your money in, in, in this right now, right? Um, I, so I have, in the book, I recommend the companies to use, and I also recommend the companies that are the worst companies on earth. And I name them by name, and I tell you, do not use these banks, these investment firms. I actually stripped some of the recommendations from the last edition in this new edition. I have 100% trust in the work I've done, my money is in Vanguard, the bulk of my net worth. And they actually show the math. So you can see why they said that. It's not like, hey, we want you to put your money. Frankly, an individual investor makes no difference. They manage, if not a trillion dollars, close to it. So sure. random person listening is not gonna make a difference. What they found is that because the market tends to go up two thirds of the time, and there's magic in being uh, in the market, not trying to time the market, your odds are better of it going up by putting all your money in now. Even though we are at a, a potential crossroads, like we, we're, we're waiting for another recession to happen, at least theoretically. Okay. What is it, every nine years on average, there's a, there's a dip in the market and we're at a very high point right now. Maybe, maybe we are, yeah. maybe not. There's another, well, uh, I, I, let, me, let me be more clear. We're at a high point relative to where we've been a decade ago. Correct, but also a decade ago, we were in the worst recession of all time. However, I take your point, we, are, we have been through a unprecedented uh, period of growth. The minute you try to time the market, the minute you try to outsmart it is the minute you will realize you're not as smart as you think you are. There's great research here, and which I cite in the book. They did a study where they found that if you missed the best, something like 10 days of a 10-year period, you would have cut your return by like 25%. Mm -hmm. If you missed the best 13 days approximately, you, your returns would actually turn negative. So what's the takeaway from that? It's not get in on the best days. You can't time the market. No. It's that what matters more is time in the market. So therefore, just get in consistently every single month. Or if you've got a lump sum, put it in and then let the market do what it's gonna do. Mm -hmm. It's gonna go up sometimes, it's gonna go down, but over history, we know that the market tends to return about 8% per year. And by automating it, you mean you don't have to watch it every day because that will create some anxiety for you, right? Like if you put $1,000 into the market and then all of a sudden there is a new recession, you're like, oh, I was so stupid. My $1,000 is only worth $500 right now. 
Yeah, but long long term, you know, with the dollar cost averaging thing, when it goes down you know, 50%, that's a better time to actually... Yeah. yeah. The, the stock market just went on sale, essentially. Yeah, it's so, it's so ironic the way we think about investing. You know, if if uh, the price of bread or toothpaste went down 50%, we would love it. Mm-hmm. Gas is down 50 Oh, it's great. But suddenly when the market goes down, oh, catastrophe. Yeah. That's a great time, especially for young investors. And I also want to say that you shouldn't be logging in to your account. Like I log in rarely. Really a good recommendation that I make is three to six months is how often you should log in just to make sure your allocation's fine. And that's it. You don't need to do anything. The way that you should treat your investments is the way I treat this glass of water. It has no emotional valence for me. It's boring. It's functional. It's just is. I don't feel anything for it. But when people think about investing in money, they have all these emotions, usually bad. Negative, anxiety, stress, embarrassment. I'm stupid. I'm I'm behind. Wrong. Once you get educated, you're going to treat it like a mere fact. It's a glass of water. It's there to serve me. It's doing its thing. It's automated. Let the machine do what it's going to do. Yes, indeed. Let's dive into some of these questions we have here today. Our first question is from Mac in Los Angeles. I know credit cards, you definitely don't want to have them. Uh, you see them more as uh, a thing to, to get in debt from. Um, but what do you think about utilizing it to earn credit card points? Uh, my method of earning extra points has been, you know, when I go out to dinner with my friends, go out somewhere, treat my girlfriend out or uh, pay for friends' things with my credit card and keeping a blacklist of, you know, who owes me money uh, with Venmo and cash is pretty much my my receiving uh, payment. Uh, so what do you think about using credit cards to, uh, I guess, help you, you know, earn points, you know, for miles, or are you into that type of thing or anything like that? Well, Ramit, what, what do you think about credit cards? What's your, what's your philosophy on credit cards? My philosophy is that um, you should use them wisely. You should not have any credit card debt. If you have it, you should pay it off. But I also think that they are great tools. Mm -hmm. They give us cash back. They give us rewards, which we can use for amazing travel. They also give us perks that a lot of people don't know about. For example, I bought a laptop. This is years ago, that first one. Mm -hmm. I spilled coffee in it the first week. The credit card company just wrote me a check. So there are lots of perks that we can use. But of course, we need to use them sensibly. And I I agree with that. I think that if we are in... In debt, we definitely don't want to have credit cards because they enable us to get further into debt, right? It's it's giving us a bigger shovel and uh, from which to, uh, with which we can we can dig our ditch. Now, the thing that I'll say about about these credit card points is like if you can actually use it responsibly. So so the thing I'm I'm going to use here is most people aren't going to use them responsibly, right? And that's that's what we've learned. We've learned that most people don't use the data shows that. Yeah, we can justify. Well, yeah, I'm going to get all these points and and these bonuses and 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 the concierge with my American Express or whatever it might be. And those things can potentially be good, but the data shows that most people are irresponsible with credit cards. I agree with you 100%. 100%. 100%. I'm so glad you said it. Again, I live in a world of what is, not what could be. So the data does show that. And if you are listening saying like, hey, I actually have like $6,000 of credit card debt, but I'm getting these points, then you're making a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there are a group of consumers who pay it off every month and they get amazing perks. And, you know, I'll just give you an example from my own life. I'll just kind of break out how I use my credit cards. So I have, I primarily use a... um, travel rewards card when I eat out or when I travel. For everything else, I use a cashback card and I pay it off every single month. I've never carried credit card debt, nor will I ever. 
I can tell you that the, some of the perks are overstated. Like the concierge hardly ever does anything. It's pointless. Mm -hmm. So that's not really a perk. The um, There are some things... It, that's the thing. A lot of these perks sound like yeah, perks. That, that's they why don't I wanna, bear out. Yeah, they're not that good. But I'll tell you the ones that are good so you can make your own decisions. You know, when I travel, I will often get upgraded because of the points that I use or because I have some status thing on uh, Amex Platinum, for example, get into some lounges. Um, I think that the insurance for them is really good for purchase protection. And a lot of people don't know that these protections you get are automatic and they're amazing for warranty extensions, etc. But overall, the best reward to have is to have enough money to pay for anything cash. That is ultimately the best reward. So maybe the, the, the message here that we agree on is you can have a credit card as long as you could afford to pay for that thing in cash in the first place. Yeah, 100%. You don't want it to be a payday loan. And, and that's the thing. Like, well, and that's what I used to do. Even when I was making really great money in the corporate world, I'm like, well, I don't have the money in my bank, but ah, ah, my future self will pay for that's it. A, so I added a whole section on psychology, the psychology of money in this book. And there's one page on the invisible scripts around credit cards. Invisible scripts are beliefs that are so deep that we've absorbed that they are actually invisible. One of them in America is you got to buy a house to be an adult. But there's so many about credit cards. And I surveyed a ton of people who went into debt about credit cards and asked them, what did you tell yourself when you were in debt? And they start off by saying, oh, this is just a one-time thing. Like, I can pay this off next month. And then you watch it become progressively darker and darker. And at the end, they're like, this is just the way it is. This is the cost of doing business. And that's how I think the average American feels at this point is... This is the cost of doing business, whether it's student loans. We have a question about that we'll get to. Is well, the Part of the American dream is having diverse debt, which is such a terrible... It's, it's a terrible precedent to set because it, it radically restricts our freedom. I agree with that. I agree that if you... There are so many things that restrict our freedom, whether they be these massive loans that people take out homes which geographically limit you and just things things in your house that are sitting there collecting dust which limit your ability to be creative and actually just come home and go ah um so i agree with you on that and i think um you know when it comes to credit cards let's be sensible about it uh don't delude yourself into thinking you will be different than everyone else all you need to do is look at your history if you have credit card debt that should be a red flag red alarm pay it off fast because it's very high interest rates. Mm -hmm. But for those of you who do, uh, who can afford to pay it off, I also wanted to show people coming on this show and writing this book that there actually are a lot of people who are earning a lot of money. There are a lot of people who are doing fine with their money. And it's not only about saying no to all these things, but about saying, when does it make sense for me to use credit cards? When does it make sense for me to splurge on something I love? When is it appropriate is, is what we're asking, right? Yes. And and I think that is true with uh, the physical things we bring into our life. Is this appropriate for me? And by the way, is it appropriate for me at this time in my life? You know, I'm, I'm 37 now. Actually, I'm 38 in a few weeks. And when I first found minimalism, I was 28. Yeah. And my life is so appreciably different now. I've got a, a wife, six-year-old daughter, etc. And so what adds value to my life today is different from what added value to my life in my late 20s. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I think you have to be pretty introspective and honest with yourself about where you are in your journey. I think it's like a wave, you know? There are certain times in life, for example, in my early 20s, going out a lot in San Francisco and New York, and that was awesome. Now married, like less interesting to me to go out to a bar till 3 a.m., etc. 
Um, but at the same time, there are things that other people are interested in that I am not. For example, meditation. This is like super hot. I got to meditate every morning. And, and a lot of people who I really respect are like, dude, it changed my life. I totally respect that. But it's not right for me at this time. Have you tried it? I've tried it a little bit. Yeah, and I think that's the important that that's yeah. the important thing is we have to be willing to try. So like when I say I don't like travel, yeah, I've been to every large city in the United States. I've been to a bunch of different countries on book tour. Like I have tried the travel thing. Right. It wasn't just in your head. Like this is not this right. Is, yeah, I love that. I agree, and I have tried it. But I also know enough to know that because all these people I respect are telling me it's valuable, I will probably like it at some point in my life it's just not right now and so there there are probably people listening there's something that you've heard everybody around you telling you you need to do this and like i said i believe most people are mostly the same so if everyone's telling you something it's likely true not always but likely but it might just not be right for you right now it might not be appropriate for your situation and you might discover as you focus on what you love and what your rich life is that hey i'm actually never going to like that yeah. or maybe i'll like it later but you don't have to do what everyone tells you even if they have the coolest morning routines and this and that or they buy a house you decide what your own rich life is you don't have to like it because someone else likes it exactly our next question is from melina in los angeles my partner and I are both software developers in our mid-20s, and we are planning to retire by our early 30s. We graduated college without debt and have no credit card debt. We also have been saving as much as possible. Our post-retirement goals are to raise a family and pursue other passions and hobbies. What recommendations do you have for those who are seeking early retirement? So for Melina, early retirement, it sounds like she's identified not just retiring for the sake of retiring. I think Sometimes it's unfortunate because like, well, yeah, I'll just, I, I want to retire. But what does that even mean? Yeah. The FIRE community, Financial Independence Retire Early, is huge. It's it, 10 years ago when I wrote the first edition of the book, it wasn't around. Right. And now it is. And I, I added uh, my thoughts on FIRE. Are you in that documentary? No. Okay. No. Um, I will say, this is, this is my take, and then I can talk about Molina's question, which is a great one. Uh, I think that anything that gets Americans to save more is a good thing. Americans have such an abysmal savings rate that anybody who can help, I love it. It is terrible. And I've, I don't know if you've heard anything about this. I think part of it might have to do with the English language. Have you, have you heard about this? No. So, so there are some languages, and I'm going to butcher this because I'm not a, a grammarian or a, a lexicographer, but, but uh, and nor do I know any other languages. Um, but apparently we, we have a language you know, that has a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense, and we tend to think mostly in the present and past tense. Okay. Uh, some languages, the future tense is the same as the present tense. So you will say, um, he walked to the store, or he is walking to the store, even for the, the future version of Sean, for example. So Sean is walking to the store a week from now, a year from now, 30 years from now. And the countries that there seems to be a correlation. I don't know whether it's causation or not. There seems to be a correlation between countries like Japan, whose language, um, the future tense is the same as the present tense. So they think of their future self as the same person as their present wow, self. I've never heard this. This is fascinating. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't know if, if that is actually true, yeah. but it seems to me that, that there are some people who I, I think we, at least in America, we often 
disengage. Like, well, that's some hypothetical future version of myself. He'll be fine. He'll actually be better than fine. He's going to be ripped. He's going to be, you know, saving a ton of money, millionaire, perfect relationships. And, and then we're like, oh, but today I don't work out. I don't save any money. I don't call my mom and dad or anyone else. And there's a disconnect between our future selves, which are always perfect and who we are today. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's interesting. I got to look into that. Yeah, so, so so if you have someone like Melina who yeah. is looking to retire early, yeah. raise a family as part of that. Yeah. Now, what I'll say is you don't have to retire to raise a family. I'm, I'm living proof of that. But also, what, is, what does retirement mean to you? Like, I don't feel, I, I kind of feel retired in, in a way right now. And I think, <laughs> I think maybe you're, you're similar to well, that. Well, I, I, I got to tell you something funny. So one day I was working really hard. We had some big thing coming out at work. And I'm, I've got all these, you know, team members and I'm on calls till late at night. And my mom called me and my mom still doesn't quite understand what I do. Although she loves that there's a book and that I've been in the Sacramento Bee. So she can tell all of her friends, right? (laughs) So she, she goes, oh, how are you doing? Uh, I said, yeah, it's good. Like things are pretty busy at work. And she goes, well, you know, you're basically retired, right? And I was like, I've been working 80 hours a week. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, um. Okay, so for Melina, this is a great question. First of all, it sounds like she and her husband have a plan. They're aligned. I love that. They've clearly talked about it. Uh, If they're hitting their savings goals and they are investing, I'm sure they're very savvy talking about a 4% withdrawal rate and all the stuff that the FIRE community does. The one thing that I might add, which is a little different than what's discussed in the FIRE community, is as I look at the discussions on lean fire or financial independence, these subreddits, I see a lot of words like anxious, uh, escape. Um, I want to get away from the man. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you that those are not the healthy words of a well-considered financial strategy. Like you heard the way I talked about my investment system, right? Oh yeah, I'm going to put it in. It's going to automate itself. And then I get my guilt-free spending. That's low, I call it hot to cool. Hot are words like embarrassment, anxious, too late. Cool are words like, I'm going to go out and I'll decide if I want this or that. Simple, cool, clean. The financial independence community has some amazing things going for it. They basically came out of the gate and said, oh, like a 10% savings rate? How about 70? I love that. They just push to limit. That's amazing. But I also think if you look into, go look at the financial independence subreddit right now. In the top 10 or 20 posts, there will be a number of them that are saying things like, I hate my job. Mm. And so, you know, one logical conclusion for that would be, why don't you find a better job? Right. Are you running towards something or are you running away from exactly. it? And, and exactly. So if you ask people, what do you want to do when you retire? This is all over the financial independence subreddit. You know what the n- number one answer is? Sleep. That's not a healthy answer. Sleep. Why don't you take a nap for four days? Go go get a staycation at a hotel in your town. That's not a healthy answer. Now, if you were to say, you know what? I love working out. I want to compete in a triathlon, but I don't have time right now. Great. But also triathlon doesn't take that much time. Like it's one thing in a full rich life. Mm-hmm. So I would love for people to start living outside the spreadsheet now. What you'll find is that a lot of people, and these people tend to be engineers, they tend to be more technical, they tend to have gotten pretty good at money, right? They, they know their savings rate, they know all this allocation stuff. But the thing is, they wake up in the morning and they go, you know what I need to do? I need to open up my spreadsheet and double check cell C4. 
C4 is not going to save you, my friends. Once you've got your money system working, you actually need to stop spending money on it, stop spending time on it, excuse me, and turn the page into the next chapter of your life. And the next chapter, once you've got your automatic savings and your investment and all that stuff, the next chapter is not just a little bit more. It's actually completely different. It's living outside the spreadsheet. And that is things like whether travel's important to you or whether family's important to you or just going out and doing walking in a park in the city you live in, whatever. But it actually has very little to do with money. That's why I always say money is a small, important, but small part of living a rich life. And so so really what we're asking here with, with Melina is... What does a retired life look like? What is your rich life going to look like when when you retire? And it doesn't sound to me just from her intonation like she's running away from no, a ball. Sounds great. Sounds like she's running towards something. But get really, really, really specific about what you're running towards. So let's let's do that right now as a little exercise. Like what most people do when I ask them what's your rich life is they have two answers. One is freedom. I want to do what I want when I want. Or they have some number with which they pulled out of thin air. Usually- By the way, that, that freedom thing, doing what I want when I want, that's tyranny. Um, w- my daughter, she's six. And like, if I l- go, just go do whatever you want when you want yeah. like she's gonna go play in traffic or something like that that isn't real freedom totally agree constraints define us and sometimes you have constraints by pure financial constraints or you live somewhere but at a certain point i've actually found that my rich life includes constraints that i set for myself so you know Yes, I could go out and buy XYZ, but I don't want to. I want to work. I want to enjoy my life. And I, if you, like you said, if you just start doing whatever you want, whenever you want, it becomes a very empty life very quickly. Mm-hmm. So um, what I would ask Molina, I would say, okay, so you want to, you know, you want to raise a family. Okay, tell me about that. Mm-hmm. And, they, and I, I can almost guarantee the first answer would be, well, I want to, you know, like have time with my son or future son or daughter. Okay, great. What time do you want to wake up? What do you want to do? Where do you want to go on a Tuesday? And what you will discover, I guarantee it, is those answers dry up pretty quickly. The answer is like, oh, I want to have time in the morning to play with my kid. Awesome. Respect. Then what? And after three or four or five things, they and you will realize that that's pretty much the extent of how far they've thought. And I want to push people. Push them. It can be, you know, I want to live abroad for a month. It can be, I want to fly my mom and dad or whoever else to come in and and join us in this family rearing, whatever it is. But I want you to think about it because you might discover that the rich life you envisioned only went to a surface level and your rich life can go so much deeper, but nobody can do it. You need to get specific. I want you to get as specific as saying, this is the type of tea I want to drink every morning. I don't want to have to take out my trash. I want to hire somebody to do it whatever it is for you. And I think what you find out when you, when you do get really specific is that it doesn't take nearly as much money as you thought it would to live that quote-unquote rich life. Exactly. It, we, we, we prefer this idea of these vague words like freedom, but, but the, the real reason we don't focus on them is that we might discover we could actually be living that life today. It's easier to live a life of dreams than to actually focus on it today. I had a woman who wrote me an email. She said, I always tell myself I want to go for a run three times a week, but I never do. And I said, why don't you just go for a run once a week? And she goes, once a week? What would that do? That's pointless. (laughs) She would rather dream about running three times a week than actually go for a jog once a week. Same with people and their money. Oh, I want to be a millionaire. Well, that's nice. Okay, million. First of all, what's that going to get you? But okay, you want to be a millionaire. But they would rather dream about being a millionaire 
than to start saving $50 a month. Right. Right. Because, because we feel, you know, I have this rule of two, right. It, that, uh, we wrote about, uh, Sean put a link to that in the show notes. So basically I have a similar thing where it's like, I would love to meditate every day, but I don't, right. I don't actually do it. And so my rule is I'll meditate twice a week. I give myself to permission to feel good if I do it twice a week instead of seven times a week. Right now, here's the thing. Often I'll have three, four, five days a week. And it's like, I'm really winning. Whereas if my previous template was seven, well, five is a failure. Totally. But on my current template, I am wildly succeeding. Uh, writing, I probably write five or six days a week, but my rule is I have to write at least two days a week. I love that. How did you become, how did you develop that? theory. I love that theory. Well, I, I found that I was stressing myself out because I, I had set high standards in a bunch of different areas, like 11 or 12 different areas where I want to exercise every day. I want to go for long walks. I want to get sunshine every day. And all of a sudden it's like, I have to do these dozen things a day in order for me for, for, to feel satisfied. But then I realized like, no, if, what if I just did these once or twice a week. And I found that it was really easy for me to win yes. if I just did it twice a week. So to me, this is an amazing example of a rich life. We, we have the same philosophy in this case, but just different words and different lenses. We have a thing internally, uh, which we call declare victory and go home. Declare victory means victory when you started out was you know working out five times a week or seven times a week or writing. And then you had the wherewithal to say, hey, I set this goal, but it's actually not happening. And I feel bad. You feel bad about the goal you yourself set. Right. Now, most people do this and they do it with money a lot. They're like, oh, I really should be saving X, Y, Z, or I should be ahead or whatever. But the difference is that most don't make a change. Mm -hmm. And you did, which is why I wanted to know, like, how did you sit back and say like, all right, this isn't working. I need to change it, which you did. And we call it declare victory and go home. Shrink the field of vision. You don't need to save $10,000 a month. You can save 50. Guess what? Pat yourself on the back, declare victory and go home. And as you become a higher earner, as you become more sophisticated, as you pay that debt off and you have more money to focus on savings, you can tune or turn that number up. But at each step, you're just going to pat yourself on the back. I I think I underappreciated how much celebration matters. Okay. And I think that if I would, were to go back in my 20s, I would celebrate more. I, like for me, I'm, as an entrepreneur, I'm just like already on to the next thing. But I should have said like, hey, I hit this goal or we hit this goal. Let's take a second, declare victory and go. We did a great job today. And well, I, Let's talk about, let's, let's expand on that a little bit because I'll tell you one thing I, I still struggle with is... Um, I don't want to call it living in the moment, but sort of celebrating in in the moment. Like things that we've done. So Ryan and I have gone on nine tours in the last nine years. Um, some fairly long ones, some short ones as well. And I have really great memories of those. 2014, we did 119 cities. And like I remember how amazing that was. But in the moment, I didn't I didn't celebrate it as much. And I wish I would have. And so I'm, I'm still trying to get better at recognizing, and, I, and strangely enough, meditation has helped me. Uh, we had Sam Harris on here recently, and um, the thing he talks about is, is the thing that meditation really is, is noticing. And I think I struggle with noticing in the moment because it's always like, move on to the next thing. What is the next accomplishment, achievement, whatever, as opposed to like, I can pause for literally a moment and just notice this. And I think the same is true with 
you know what I did? I put $50 yeah. into my Roth IRA this month. Let me notice that. Let me acknowledge that yeah. in the moment. You know, I, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's an entrepreneur thing. I don't know if it's a guy thing, but I definitely find that myself. And I don't have the perfect answer. I'm still searching for it. I noticed that after getting married, my wife intuitively will say, you know what, like, this was great. Like, wow, what an amazing job. And for me, I'm already off on the next thing, but she kind of naturally knows to celebrate that. So I'm trying to learn from her, but I'm also kind of like, I do this for a living. How did she get so good at just intuitively knowing to stop and celebrate? And I'm like, I, it's so confusing. But it also makes me appreciate that there are differences. Like I will always naturally be more like, what's next? What's next? And I'm trying to dial that to this other side to get access to that part of my body and brain. But I have Ooh, to say, I like this. What, what's next? Maybe asking what's now. Oh, and, and so like sometimes it's like, well, I just want to get this over. And it was another thing we talked to Sam Harris about is like, you, if you look at your to do list or whatever, you don't actually want there to be nothing on your to do list. That's that's a, the most boring. That's like living in a sane asylum, right? Totally. Where you, if you have nothing else to do ever again, and unfortunately, that's how we look at retirement. Sometimes yeah, I was just gonna say, isn't that like some of what's going on with fire? Not all, but some. Like, oh, I just want to sleep, or I just want to retire. Well, retire to what? Right, right. Yeah. Where are we moving to now? We answered Geo's question already. Uh, Geo's from Salt Lake City, and she asked about the house payment versus the rent payment. I think we did a good job tackling that. But we do have a question from uh, Bellingham, Washington. Uh, Brownwin, Bronwyn, Bronwyn asks, uh, well, here's a voicemail. I know that avoiding debt by all means is your first priority. However, I'm getting ready to take on student loans to go back to school to become a nurse. I'm so excited and passionate about this decision, and getting the degree is required for this field. Therefore, that is basically unavoidable for me. However, there are nursing jobs that available that offer loan forgiveness if you work in certain settings. So that is my immediate plan upon graduation to eliminate my debt as quickly as possible. So my question is regarding my retirement fund. Upon your suggestion, this past year I set up a Roth IRA through Betterment as I had no retirement fund set up previously. I currently have enough money to max out this account before the end of the tax year, but that would not leave me much money left over starting my nursing program in June, and I would therefore have to take out a bigger loan. I am confident that I can get the loans paid off in the first few years of working as a nurse, so I'm wondering which makes more sense at the moment, investing more in my future now or putting the money towards tuition and living expenses. This is what we're talking about when we talk about having better problems, right? Like, this is a good problem for Bronwyn to have. She is going to be a nurse, which is something you do need a degree for. I, I don't know about you, but I want my nurses to have gone to some sort of school. Yeah. The, the do-it-yourself uh, nursing degree doesn't work out. Yeah, I think that I saw an ebook on uh, some site about become your own nurse. I said, no, thank you. <laughs> I will teach you to be a nurse. <laughs> uh, <laughs> here's the thing. Um, my my advice to her would be if I were in her situation, I I would find a way to go through school without getting into debt. Now, I, I, I wouldn't do student loans again. I don't have a college degree, but I had student debt, which is like a really bad recipe, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, I people often think, well, how can you do it? You have to have student loans in order to go to school. And my my retort to that would be, has there ever been a nurse? Is there a nurse working right now who 
didn't have to have student loans to get through college. And if so, what was their recipe? Can you, can you talk to two or three nurses who don't have any student loan debt and figure out how they got there? And if so, wow, you can get through. Now, it might require a little bit of saving, uh, a little bit of short-term deprivation. I'm not, I don't think minimalism is about deprivation. I don't think what you're talking about in, in your book is about deprivation. But we can acknowledge that short-term deprivation can lead to long-term abundance. I got to say, first of all, I just love what you said about has there ever been a nurse who graduated without debt? And I think that is such a powerful concept of has there ever been one person who did this thing that I'm thinking about? And if so, let me try to learn from them. Maybe I can't even do it as much as they did, but if I can do 50%, at least I can learn what they did. You can grab some ingredients from their yes. recipe, apply it to your own life. That's why I have this thing called Ramit's book buying rule. And the rule is if you ever think about buying a book, if you're ever even considering it, just buy the book. It's $10. It's the best ROI you will ever get from an author spending years of their work into this book because you can always apply one thing. And it's crazy how people agonize over these tiny questions when really they should just buy the book and apply it. So back to the nursing question. I have, I'll, I'll, I'll tackle it. I think we semi-agree, but maybe in different ways. Um, I believe that behavior matters a lot and patterns matter a lot. So when I have people who say, I'm going to college or I'm going to grad school, should I invest? I tell them yes. Even though technically it may not make sense depending on their interest rate, I think it's important to even put $50 or $100 a month because you get used to the concept of investing every single month. So I would I agree with that. In fact, uh, the 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 thing the the article she talked about, one of the things we talk about is setting aside even as you're paying off debt, setting building that 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 investing muscle, setting aside 20 bucks a month just so you you you've you've automated it but you also know that you have the capability yes, to do it. Th- exactly. And then you can turn that capability up. Easier to go from 20 to 100 than 0 to 20. Right. Perfect. Now, as for can she graduate with no debt? I mean, I think what you said is great. If she can, she should talk to people. She should put out a tweet saying, hey, any nurses out there that graduated with no, and find out. If she can't, which again, I'm talking about most people are mostly the same. Most people will graduate that program with debt. I would like her to do a little bit of extra work up front. I would like her to find out how much debt she's going to have. What are those payments going to be? You can put it in a calculator right now. What is her average income going to be of a newly graduated nurse and what percentage is that going to be i want her to know walking in you know i'm just going to do easy math i'm going to make a thousand dollars a month and i'm going to have to pay 120 dollars a month towards my debt for x years if she does that she's going to walk out knowing wow every additional dollar of loan i take is going to take me this many years longer to pay off and she's going to be educated about it so i don't have a problem if she graduates with student loan debt she's going to have a good job she's going to know roughly what her salary is going to be but i want her to walk out knowing the exact amount of time it's going to take for her to pay it off basically have a plan yeah having a plan is is so important and so if i'm if i'm in uh bronnie uh shoes here i what i would tell her is I'm going to get through school. I'm going to find a way to get through school using someone else's recipe, someone else's template to have no debt. And I'm going to max out my Roth IRA. That's what I'm going to do if I'm in your shoes. If for some reason you feel that that's not possible for you, 
but you still tweeze out some of those ingredients so you get some sort of scholarships or something. Maybe you're going to graduate with less student debt and then you contribute what you can to, to this Roth IRA. Uh, thoughts on Roth IRAs in general? Love Roth IRAs. They're an amazing uh, account that allow you pretty amazing tax advantages. Um, just so everybody understands the differences, there's you've heard of 401ks, Roth IRAs. Some have even heard of HSAs, which are an amazing triple win for tax advantages. There's a basic uh, thing that I call the ladder of investing in the book. And all it is is basically if you have a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks, where does that money go? And a good way to visualize this is if you've ever seen a movie where someone's at one of these big cocktail parties and they pour champagne into the top glass and then it drips into the next row of four, then eight, right? Right. Same thing with investing. You take your first X thousand dollars and it goes into your 401k, then your Roth IRA, then back to the 401k and on and on. There's a formula. It's very straightforward for where your money goes. I say that because you hear all these confusing words like 401k. You're like, what the hell does this have to do with me? And what I wanted to do in the book was to show you this is the first account to use, then the second. And if you've still got money, you can put it into the third, fourth, and fifth. That makes a lot of sense. All right, we've got, uh, I know Ramit's got to get out of here. We've got to get him on a flight. So we've got one more question here from Eduardo in Brooklyn. I've started to do well in the corporate world and now make good money, but I'm seeking more meaning and fulfillment. I've always wanted to pursue graphic design. What advice do you have for someone who is trying to step away from the comfort of financial success? And what steps did you guys take when leaving your jobs to get by financially? I will say this. When I, this was the time when the budget was most important to me. Mm. Um, I left the corporate world. I made $23,000 that year or the, the year I left. And um, I was strangely more financially free because I had my my spending under control. Now it took it really it took more of a a shift in mindset, realizing like oh I didn't need these things, I didn't actually enjoy the things I was bringing into my life. In fact, they brought in all these negative consequences: stress, debt, anxiety. It made me feel that way about money, and so in a strange way, I was actually contributing more, making twenty three thousand dollars a year, not just to my own retirement, but I was contributing more to the community because I had freed up my time and my other resources, which are equally, if not more, important. This is the this shows you the power of mindset. And I, I, I'm not really woo-woo. If anything, you can tell I could sit here and talk for three hours about asset allocation and Vanguard research. But last night we met a woman who was there and she said that for years she had been in debt. For years. Her husband's a CPA. Her husband had been telling her, we got to pay off this debt, etc. But it wasn't until they decided they wanted to buy a house in LA and she saw how much it cost and she wanted that house that she said, you know what? I'm going to start paying this off. And I asked her last night, I said, would you have changed for anything else? If somebody gave you this advice four years ago, would you have changed? She's like, my husband gave me that advice all the time. I didn't listen. I wasn't ready. And so your example is perfect because you, as you said, saved more, were, were contributing more meaningfully to your community on 23,000 than on six figures. Now imagine if you're as mindful at 100,000 as you were at 23. It amplifies the good decision. Exactly. So for everyone listening, you have to find your why, you have to find your reason, and it could be buying a house, it could be we're having a kid, it could be I wanna leave my unfulfilling job and go into graphic design. I will share a few tools that I used for this as well. 
first of all, I know what it's like to make a little bit of money because when I graduated, I was going to go work at Google. I decided not to. I decided to do a tech startup. I made $11,000 that year. <laughs> and I still had a lot of friends working at Google. So I'd go eat there. I would take my backpack and fill it up with popcorn and free food. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so in the eyes of uh, the average Stanford, you went to Stanford, right? Yeah. You're the average Stanford graduate. You, you might have been looking at yourself like, oh, what am I doing? I should have done the Google thing. 100%. I mean, I was really torn. And first of all, these are first class, uh, first world problems. Like, should I go to Google? Or should I work on my own startup? But the startup didn't make money. So that's important to know. But I had the freedom and flexibility. I had very low expenses. I was living in a shared house with three or four other guys. And my rent was like 800 bucks a month in Mountain View, which is good. And I knew I had confidence in myself that I'll make this work or I can always go back and get another job. Yeah. Okay, so there was that. Uh, I will say that when I finally, the, the startup took off and I was thinking about, should I go full-time on I Will Teach You To Be Rich? And I basically created a simple formula for myself. And that was, I was doing I Will Teach on the side. I had my full-time income. And I said, I'm not even gonna think about leaving until I make more through I Will Teach You To Be Rich three months in a row. Not once, and that happened. Once, twice, and I was like, ooh, it's about to happen. Nope, go back to zero. So it forced me to recognize that it wasn't a fluke, that there was something here and it had to be consecutive. Now you might say, look, I'm just starting off my graphic design thing. I can't hope to equal what I currently make in any reasonable amount of time. Fine, make it 50%. Make it whatever it is that is meaningful to you that you're not gonna go from, let's say, making $120,000 to zero because that's a very sudden stop. I would rather have you go a little bit gradual and have the formula that works for yourself. But when it comes to your money, I like to be realistic. I like to be conservative, but I also like to leave room for big growth. Yeah, and I, I would, the only thing I would add to that is I wouldn't leave until you're debt-free. So make sure that you're debt-free because that, that debt is an anchor for you. So not only do you have the anchor of the career that you don't find meaningful, which by the way, the last thing I guess I could say here is you can find meaning in whatever you're doing. You might be working at a gas station pumping gas. That Well, I guess you're going to do that in New Jersey now. But uh, um, if you're doing that, you can find great meaning in that. Meaning only exists because we impart it onto something. There is not an intrinsic meaning in this glass of water, totally. right? And, and so when, when we're talking about meaning, maybe you can temporarily find what is meaningful about the work you are doing, the customers you're serving, the problems you're solving. I'm so glad you said that because I don't want anyone to mistake the idea that if you suddenly become an entrepreneur, you're going to have meaning. That is not true. You will have to find meaning there just as you have to find meaning in your job. I also don't want people to mistake that if I double my income, it's going to be meaningful. No. It's not. Until you find meaning where you are today, you will not find meaning in the next place you go. And so looking inside yourself, as you said, I'm so glad you said, look, try to find meaning in your current job. It doesn't mean you have to stay, but it's just building a skill, a muscle of, hey, I do this rote task every day. Who at this company finds meaning? Let me go learn what they do, just as we did with the nurse who graduated. And if you can do that, suddenly you have this magical skill that no matter where you are, if you're earning a million dollars or 50K, if you're living here or there, you will be able to find meaning. That is a skill, a muscle that you can develop. Ramit, 
Thank you for being here today, brother. I want to I encourage everyone to check you out. They can find you on the web. It's just IWT.com is yep. the short way to get there. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Check out his book as well. I will teach you how to be filthy rich. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a third edition. Uh, yeah, I, I will teach you to be rich and really identify what rich is. Ramit Sadie, thank you for being here, brother. Thank you. The Minimalists. <laughs>